Did you think I'd forgotten you? Perhaps you hoped I had. Caitlin, I don't know about you, but I've been watching a lot of House of Cards lately. Me too. I'm totally obsessed. It makes me a little paranoid because I am a reporter in a sweatshirt named Zoe. Spoiler. There is but one rule. Hunt or be hunted. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny. And I'm Zoe Barnes. Zoe Chase. (laughs) It's cool. I'm not scared. Today on the show, three great Planet Money stories that have aired on the radio, and each of these stories reminded us of something that's going on in House of Cards. Story number one, we visit the back rooms where secret deals are made. Two, we learn Machiavellian negotiating tactics. And three, we learn how to use spin to get something through Congress. First up, the backroom deals. So Netflix is the most popular thing on the internet right now, and it got especially popular in mid-February, thanks to House of Cards. And all that traffic sometimes makes the video slow. Because it turns out there's this war going on behind your screen over how to get you your House of Cards as fast as possible. And the question is, who is going to pay? Who's on the hook to get your videos to stream as smooth as possible? Zoe, you brought us this first story. We're going to trace one simple internet request, one that lots of people have made lately. Hi, um, my name is Rachel Margolis. I'm in Brooklyn in my apartment, and we're about to watch House of Cards. Pennsylvania behind us, if you are. I want nothing more. And what's going on? Still no idea. It turns out that getting this episode from Netflix to here is at least as complicated as what happened in season two of House of Cards. When someone's on the ropes, that's when you throw a combination to the gut and a left hook to the jaw. So where does your internet come from? That cable thingy in my wall. Do you know what happens on the other side of the wall? No. I no. What's happening on the other side of the wall is a battle of sorts, a battle between Netflix and the Internet service providers, companies like Time Warner, who brought the cord into Rachel's apartment. To explain the issue, let's follow Rachel's request to play House of Cards. Rachel clicks, the request travels out on the cable to a box on the corner, and the sticker says, Time Warner Cable of New York City. Time Warner sends it across the river to this magical place in Manhattan. You're at 111 8th Avenue. It's so big. Third largest building, so you assume Empire State Building, but just turned on its side. This is Ben Gagne of a company called Telex. The Time Warner cables come into this building, so do all the cables of all the different providers and a lot of the companies who use them, the Yahoo's, the Google's, the Twitter's. This place is where all these companies talk to each other. It's called a carrier hotel, and they're in lots of cities. But the real action here is in what you might think of as the hotel bar. This is where all of the different parts of the Internet meet. So what we're walking into now is the building Meet Me Room. The Meet Me Room. This is the Meet Me Room. Meet Me Room. They call it the Meet Me Room. Just wires. Just wires. Everywhere. I mean, this is a crucial moment for Rachel's request because up till now, all the wires have been paid for by Time Warner. And it's about to move into the world where Netflix pays the bills. Netflix has made deals with a lot of companies that have pipes that come into this room, and boom, Rachel's request is out, heading to one of the places where House of Cards is kept 
maybe New York or maybe... Northern Virginia, Chicago, Atlanta, Miami. And this is the guy who gets it off the shelf. Dave Schaefer is CEO of Cogent, one of the many companies that Netflix uses to get your videos. They own a bunch of pipes, and their job is to get the video as fast as possible. On average, that request will actually travel 2,400 miles. Finally. Actually, this whole thing only takes like a millisecond. But finally, Netflix is giving Rachel what she asked for, and the episode takes pretty much the same route back. Miami. This is the Mimi room. Time Warner Cable. Second season. The gut and the left hook to the jaw. When millions of people are trying to do this at the same time, this is when Netflix gets slow. They need more pipes. They need more wires in the meet-me room. And so Netflix is doing a lot of deals right now. And they actually have a lot of options when it comes to getting their content from Miami and Atlanta back to New York. But the last mile? When it delivers data to Rachel in Brooklyn, at some point, its set of choices are reduced. Shane Greenstein teaches the business of the Internet at Chicago's Kellogg School. At some point, it has to cut a deal with Time Warner. At some point, it has to go over Time Warner pipe. This is why there are fights right now between Netflix and Internet service providers, because it comes down to who's going to pay to upgrade the service, keep the videos running smoothly. The Netflixes, who are pouring all this data into the pipes, or the Time Warners, whose customers, like Rachel, are demanding it. Okay, so the thing about this story is that with all of the different internet providers, you know, the people that we cut and send a check to, Netflix is taking a different approach with each one of them. And your story was all about the approach they're taking with Time Warner, where it seems like, you know, they're at a bit of an impasse, like they're fighting over who's going to pay for what. But with a company like Comcast, which also just brings the cable into your house, Netflix has figured out a way to bypass many of the steps, like the Meet Me Room. They're basically paying Comcast to plug directly into their system. So it goes Comcast, Netflix, Comcast, no Meet Me Room. No Meet Me Room. With Cablevision, which is another one of the guys that brings the cables into your house, um, they have this other approach, which is literally bringing copies of House of Cards to Cablevision. And that also cuts out the step of the Meet Me Room. There's this one other very big, very tempting option for a company like Netflix, which is to bypass everything and just to run their own pipes into your house. And That may sound like way too big and overwhelming for one little streaming video company to take on. But actually, a couple of years ago, Google was in this same situation. So many people were trying to get on YouTube that YouTube was slow and Google has been trying to build their own pipes. Sticking with our current obsession, House of Cards, our House of Cards theme, there's this scene in season two where the hero, anti-hero main character, Congressman Frank Underwood, a guy who's obsessed with being at the top of the political leadership, he sits down with this junior congresswoman, Jackie Sharp, talking to her about a possible promotion. And listen for the dynamic between the two of them, between this powerful man and this junior congresswoman who's given a chance to rise up the ranks. Have you ever considered serving in the leadership? 
I figure that might be possible eight, ten years from now. Well, what if I suggested that you could serve in leadership this term to replace me as whip? You're being tapped for VP. Let's assume that's true. Well, that makes sense. But me as whip? Yes. A third-term congresswoman. A universally admired incumbent who also happens to be a war veteran. Webb is next in line. Or Buckwalter. Mm-hmm. So just consider that for a moment. See what just happened there? This is classic. She's being offered the job, and the congresswoman demurs. She says, who, me? No, I'm not ready. There's all these other guys in line. And... This happens in the real world, and we know this. Women know this. All the studies people who have looked at management say that women routinely undervalue themselves in a negotiation like this. Ashley Milne-Tite's a reporter working with Planet Money this month, and she brought us our next story, story number two, which is all about how researchers back up this feeling, how the research shows that women are just bad at negotiating things, and also offers some advice about what you can do about it. Emily Amanatula is a management professor at the University of Texas, and she became fascinated with the dynamics between men and women pretty early. She grew up with three brothers. She was the only girl in their gang of neighborhood kids. When she went to graduate school, she found a lot of the classic management advice was aimed more at her brothers than herself. Once you start to learn especially competitive negotiation tactics, you realize they're pretty at odds with how women generally comport themselves and how they're expected to comport themselves. Amanatula started to look closely at women's strengths and weaknesses, and they certainly seemed familiar. To very much a high degree, I am the woman that I study. I don't like to self-promote. I feel uncomfortable in situations where I have to negotiate on my own behalf. Amanatula wanted to find the source of that squeamishness. She began talking to other women about their experiences at work. Again and again, she heard women say how difficult it was to advocate for themselves at the office. But something else kept coming up. They had no trouble speaking up for colleagues. So Amanatula decided to set up a research experiment. First, men and women had to negotiate a starting salary for themselves. The men did better than the women. Then each of the subjects was asked to negotiate a salary for a friend. And what we saw was that, on average, women who were negotiating for themselves threw out a counteroffer that was $7,000 less than women who were negotiating for someone else. Again, when the women were told to negotiate for a friend, they bargained just as hard as the guys. Women are not bad negotiators. Rather, they're really quite savvy at negotiation. They just don't always use those skills for themselves. So what's really going on here? There's quite a literature on this. Several studies show when women are direct and assertive during salary negotiations, it puts managers of both genders off. They see the women as pushy and they don't want to work with them. And women know they're expected to be likable. It's a common story. I talked to Miriam Krauss. She's an academic. She remembers her first salary negotiation out of graduate school. She was desperate to come across well. There's the awareness of, I'm going to be working with these people, and you don't want to jeopardize their good opinion of you. So she picked a number she hoped wouldn't offend anyone. $22,000. And I got a call from the the contract's office, and the very nice woman there said something along the lines of, are you sure this is the number that you want? Are you sure you don't want to ask for more than this? She did end up asking for more, but to this day, she wonders how it can be less painful. So how can women negotiate as successfully for themselves as they do for others? 
One piece of management advice is basically to remind women they're rarely negotiating just for themselves. They should bear in mind they're often supporting parents or a spouse or their kids. Maggie Neal teaches negotiation at Stanford Business School. When she navigates a new employment package, she thinks of her retired husband, her three dogs, five horses, and 14 chickens. That's a lot of mouths to feed, and I'm responsible for them. Essentially, she's asking for more money, not just for herself, but for her spouse and all those animals. Another piece of advice that Neil has is to reframe the whole idea of negotiation. We really need to think about negotiation in a completely different way. Walk away from this notion of this adversarial putting on the armor, getting ready to do battle perspective. And rather think about negotiation as problem solving. Always think, what do you want? What does the company want? And how can you help each other? Here's what it sounds like. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? (laughs) Good. First of all, congratulations on the offer. Uh, This is at NYU's Stern School of Business. Students Jake Singer and Hansini Sharma are learning negotiation skills through role play. In this case, the female recruit is offered a salary of $82,000. Listen to how delicately she counters that. So I'd like to kind of talk about salary. So I was looking more at like 92, 94 in that range. Just Mm -hmm. knowing what industry standards are, how do you feel about that? So that's... Unfortunately, a little bit more than we're able to, to offer you. But ultimately, Sharma comes away with a slightly higher salary and a lot of the benefits she was angling for. She kept pushing carefully, using language like, would that be possible? Or how does that sound? If you have to rock the boat to get what you think you deserve, then you should do it. But I think there's a right way to do it. You don't have to be rude. And an interesting thing happens when you learn these skills. Sharma told me she actually likes to negotiate now. In addition to hearing Ashley here on Planet Money for the next couple weeks, you can also find her on her own podcast, The Broad Experience, where she talks about women in the workplace. Our last story today, political spin. Our very own president of the United States, Barack Obama, has been talking about raising the minimum wage. Democrats and Republicans come down on opposite sides of this generally, of course, and both claim that the research is on their side. Our own David Kessenbaum decided to take a closer look at that research, and he brought back this last story for us. Does raising the minimum wage cost jobs? That turns out to be a tough question to answer. Ideally, you'd like one universe where the minimum got raised and an alternate universe where it did not. That way you could compare the two. David Card found the next best thing. In 1992, New Jersey was about to raise its minimum wage. And right next door was his parallel universe, Pennsylvania, which was not raising its minimum wage. Card and a colleague decided to study the effects on fast food restaurants. They had a grad student go through phone books in the library, looking up numbers for Burger Kings and Wendy's. Card figured they'd just call them up and survey them. That didn't go too well. The conversations, he says, went like this. We said, we're calling to try and um, do a study about uh, employment wages in the fast food industry. Uh, Would you like to participate? What would they say? No. (laughs) They would say, no, we don't want to participate. The economists eventually hired a professional phone surveyor who was the right combination of charming and persistent. She did a few surveys. She got every single one to complete. They were willing to talk to her and they were, you know, they were just dying to get off the phone with us. This study is famous in the economics literature now, in part because of its clever design, but also because of what it found at those fast food places. There was a kind of the opposite pattern of what people might have predicted. The employment went up a little bit in New Jersey relative to Pennsylvania. 
So the state where the minimum wage had been raised, they actually started hiring more people. Yeah. Employment went up. Card, who is now at UC Berkeley, says this did not mean raising the minimum wage would be painless. Employers were probably making less money. The prices of hamburgers had gone up. But as far as he could tell, raising the minimum wage did not end up costing jobs. Card and his co-author, Alan Kruger, who until recently chaired Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, wrote a book about their findings called Myth and Measurement, The New Economics of the Minimum Wage. That book, published in 1995, kind of bugged another economist, David Newmark. He's at UC Irvine. It was presented as economics has it all wrong. And I think that, coupled with the evidence that the data looked kind of strange, just really prompted us to want to go back and just say, let's, let's try to get what we think will be better data and do the exact same thing over again. Newmark and a colleague managed to get actual payroll data from fast food restaurants in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And they came to the opposite conclusion. Raising the minimum wage slightly reduced the number of jobs. This was not the end of things, though. The authors of the original paper then went back and redid the experiment a third time, now using government data. And they found basically what they'd found before. Raising the minimum wage did not cost jobs. The economics field has been going back and forth over this issue ever since. I asked David Newmark, what should we make of the fact that smart people keep getting different answers? Maybe I'm not the best person to answer that because I've written a lot of papers on it, and, and, and they all tend to find pretty similar estimates. Couldn't I find people on the other side who would say the same thing? Uh, yes, you probably could. <laughs> <laughs> As a result, politicians, pro and con, each have their own evidence to cite, which they do year after year. Dan Hammermesh, an economist at UT Austin, finds the political debate a little exhausting. I get sick to my stomach. It just keeps on going on. So I'm bored and annoyed. The minimum wage, he says, generates more heat relative to its importance than practically any other economic policy. According to the Congressional Budget Office, raising the minimum wage could cost 500,000 jobs, but it would also increase hourly wages for more than 16 million. Dan Hammermesh says inequality is a major problem in this country, but raising the minimum wage won't really make a dent. Because it's not a very important policy. It doesn't affect very many people. There's so many things that we should be worrying about. Hammermesh's advice to Congress, raise the minimum wage, index it so it'll automatically increase with inflation, and move on. We all know that things only happen in Congress when Frank Underwood says they do. When someone's on the ropes, that's when you throw a combination to the gut and a left hook to the jaw. As always, we want to know what you thought of today's show. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us on the internet in lots of other places. I'm Zoe Chase. I'm Caitlin Kenny. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> 